This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. It's not easy for us busy geotechnical engineers to keep up with industry trends while keeping up with our engineering work. Therefore, it's our goal at the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast to help you do just that. We strive to keep our listeners informed on important industry topics and also to help educate you on interesting technical topics and trends in the geotechnical world. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Bob Goodfellow, PE, who's the president of Aldea Services Incorporated. He's a licensed professional engineer in more than a dozen U.S. states as well as Canada, and he has over 30 years of experience in the tunneling industry with project experience on five continents. In this episode, as a part of our continuation and our tunneling series, we'll be talking to him about risk management and tunneling and some of the things that tunneling engineers can do to get the most out of risk management for their projects. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Tensar International. Here's a message from Tensar about their award-winning software, Tensar Plus, which is available to you at no cost. Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs, reports, and product data can be generated for your design, and Training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. All right. Welcome to the show, Bob. How are you doing? Well, thanks very much for having me, Jared. Really appreciate being on here. I'm doing very well. Excellent. Well, we're continuing in our series focusing in on on the uh, tunnel industry. And it would be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, perhaps talk about your career journey and where do you fit in as it relates to the engineering tunneling industry? Tunneling has been a great journey for me. I've really enjoyed uh, my 30 years in the business. Uh, I started actually not working in tunneling out of college. I worked on some uh, landslides and emergency response to coastal landslides in the UK. 
from there, I uh, worked on other geotechnical projects. Uh, it, it's always been a passion of mine to work in geology and geotechnics. So when I got the opportunity to work on the Jubilee Line in London, I jumped at that opportunity. It was really great. I uh, worked for the Dr. Sauer Company on London Bridge Station and on the Brunel Tunnel rehabilitation in East London, and then got the opportunity to come to America, uh, moved to the States with Dr. Sauer in 1997 to work on the Washington Metro. And I've been based in Washington, D.C. ever since. Worked all over North America and around the world, really, but always been based in Washington, D.C. Worked for URS, headed up their tunnel group. Worked for Black and Veatch, headed up their tunnel group, and then figured the third time I would build a tunnel group would be for me. So we uh, started Aldea Services in 2011. We've just gone through our 10-year anniversary, and we're having a great time. And the business has been good to me, and the United States has been good to me. So I'm pretty happy. Great. And congratulations on 10 years. It's good to have a decade behind you. That's amazing. Yes, it is. Yeah. One big thing that I've done in my career is always taken industry associations very seriously. And uh, the Underground Construction Association in the States has been kind of a linchpin of how I've built my network and enabled uh, myself to be more connected, I guess, with what's going on in the industry at large. Uh, I'm the current past chair. I've, I've done my two years as the, the chair of the executive committee. Uh, now I'm in the past chair position and uh, just starting to figure out what I'm going to do with my post chair experiences with UCA. For listeners that are, uh, you know, might not be too familiar with the role of a tunneling engineer, can you briefly explain what is it that a tunneling engineer does? Like, what do they focus on? What are some of the challenges that they're finding solutions for? What do they do? What do you do? It's a lot of different skills involved. Um, essentially, what the tunneling engineer does is create space underground. It's an art and it's a science of digging a hole and keeping that hole open for then other people really to come through and, and finish whatever is uh, required, whether you put tracks in there, whether you put a highway in there, whether you just put sewage or water in there. The tunneling engineer is the, the set of skills required to make a space underground and keep it open long enough to be functional as a facility. So we have uh, geologists, we have uh, civil engineers. I'm a civil engineer by training and by degree, structural engineers as well. Lots of geotechnical work involved, but that interface between, and what attracted me to it in the first place was the interface between the structure and the ground and really having that soil structure interaction models, but also just an interface between all of those different disciplines is really core expertise of a tunneling engineer. It sounds very exciting and very challenging at the same time. Yeah, it really is. No two projects are the same, even if they look like they're the same. It's fascinating. What do you think are some of the fundamentals and the guidelines for tunneling risk management? And how does that process work? I've been pretty heavily involved in risk management. It's been a, an issue that the tunnel industry struggled with for a while. We have uh, not the greatest reputation in the uh, for timeliness and for um, projects being on budget when we talk about tunnel projects. The general perception is that tunnel projects are always late and over budget. That's not really correct, although there have been some very high profile issues and problems with the timeliness of our projects. So it's tough to argue against it sometimes, but the process and the fundamentals of risk management are that we try and identify ahead of time all the risks on a project. 
And engineers are very good at that because our training is to immediately go to the dark side and think of all the things that can go wrong and how do we uh, combat those issues. And that's kind of how we come up with our designs in the first place. The fundamentals of risk management are, and I always put it in a three-step process, it's avoid, mitigate, and allocate. So if you can avoid a risk, then do so. You, know, you can change an alignment to move a tunnel from going underneath a gas station that might have contaminated ground. So avoid that risk by moving over one block and going down the next street. Once you fix the alignment, you've pretty much out of the avoiding risk because your geology is a big risk and that's set with the alignment. Your third-party stakeholders along the alignment is another huge risk to tunnel projects. And that's fixed again once you've set the alignment. So once you set the alignment, you're really in the risk mitigation process. And so you're trying to minimize the impact and the likelihood of occurrence of all of those risks. And then what you can't fully mitigate, what you can't hand off to somebody else, you have to allocate in a contract. So those contract documents, then a bid, are really risk allocation tools. So you're trying to allocate those risks of say, the ground conditions, you will say, okay, the contract is responsible for these ground conditions, and the owner will be responsible for these ground conditions. So you're allocating risk as clearly as possible between all the parties. Everything we do really is risk management, if you want to put it in that context. So I try and use that framework of risk to uh, help in many different ways in managing a project. But that's how I always try and envision risk management so that we're not just distracted by the shiny ball of the issue of the day, but we're able to really lay out in front of us what the big risks are, what the risks are that are upcoming very soon. And so we're able to tackle the project in that way and, and, uh, and minimize the overall risk exposure to everybody and have a successful project. That's the objective. All right. And in your opinion, what do you think are the major internal and external risks that affect the growth of the tunneling construction industry? I mean, you've been doing this for over three decades. What are your thoughts there? That's a, an interesting question because uh, there are, and working with UCA, we deal a lot with what the internal risks are. We're trying to improve ourselves as a business, improve the overall skill level, get and attract more, more and more young folks and young engineers and, and young craft and labor into the industry. Uh, there are huge issues at the moment with getting people into the business. I know the contractors find it very difficult to find trained craftspeople. And we're talking about electricians and carpenters and those types of mechanics and those types of folks. But even on the engineering side, getting those people involved in the business where, you know, you have to move, you have to go underground and get dirty. And it's not really any more dangerous than anything else anymore. But there's a perception of, oh, I'm disappearing into a hole in the ground. It is a fascinating business and it is a, a thrilling ride as a career. But to try and explain it to people and they say, well, what's it like? Oh, well, you do a 12-hour night shift and then you come out and everybody's got, you see the eyes glazing over. <laughs> it's kind of difficult to explain how exciting it is to those that may not be so excited about it. So I think that's a huge internal risk to the industry. When it comes to external risks, I think the only real external risk is money. The need is clearly there. We have people that need tunnels, and there's a number of projects that have been in the planning stages for many, many years, decades even. But can they get funding? The water and wastewater funding in North America is user fee driven. 
it's much more reliable. The major tunneling works are the CSOs, the combined storm overflow tunnels. Those are set out on 20, 25, or 30-year schedules driven by a court, overseen by a judge. Those are fixed projects. They are happening, and they're happening on a fixed schedule, so that's fine. The highway and transit side is such a fickle funding process that is politically driven. A change of party in control of a governor's house or a city mayor, or even in the White House or in in Washington, D.C., will lead to changes in a process. This state will get some money. That state will not get any money anymore. And it's just dreadful for project process that can take a decade planning through to start a construction. It's inevitable that there's going to be political change in that process at some point. And the risks of having those projects cancelled or delayed for several years because of a change in, in elected officials is, is real and happens very frequently. And so there's definitely frustrations there. If you've designed something, you think it's going to happen, and then it kind of gets put on the shelf you know, for the next generation of engineers to look at. It's kind of, but you're right, it's a reality. Yeah, absolutely. You look at the Gateway project, it was designed, it was bid, the contracts were awarded. And at that point, the governor of New Jersey canceled the project. I said, I don't know where the money's coming from, but it just seems to me that there was, we'd got to a stage in such a critical project for the welfare of not only New York City, but overall region. And so much of the GDP of the actual country comes from there, from that area, that if you lose that infrastructure link, it has just a huge ripple effect on the entire country. And for one person to be able to just say on a what seemed to be on a whim, and I'm sure there was thought that went into it, but what seemed to be just overnight, we're done. And it was over. And then now, here we are a decade or more late, we're still trying to get back to that point of bidding projects and on that same program. It's very, very frustrating. So it takes some patience. Take some patience. As I always like to say, my kids need work too. It goes a generation down. <laughs> At some point we have to build it. Yeah. What do you think are some of the things that the tunnel engineers could do to get the most out of uh, risk management? Of going keeping it front of mind. What are some of the things they could do? Well, I think that everything we do is to do with something to do with risk management. So it's really just a change in the, the shift of a mindset. Commitment to the process. I mean, if you have a process of risk management and you say, okay, we are going to manage risk on this project and this is our process for doing it, fully committing to the process is probably the most useful thing. I find this a lot as I go around the country doing risk management audits and and doing uh, reviews of various different projects. If you have a risk management process that involves every six to nine months, we have a meeting for a couple of hours. Then at the end of the meeting, everybody says, great. We've done our risk management. And six months later, I'll say, so where is the latest risk register? And the person looks at me blankly and says, don't you have the latest risk register from the last meeting? And I said, yeah, but that was six months ago. Has nothing happened? What are you doing? That is not managing the risk of a project in accordance with the process, right? So uh, if you can really commit to a process. So I've had projects where the risk register is actually taped to the wall in the laborers trailer, in the trailer where the staff and the craftsmen and the laborers are. And they have the license to take the Sharpie off the wall and just, no, we're not doing this, cross that out. 
this is what we're doing, write it in. And then every couple of weeks, we'll tear it off the wall and we'll provide an update and we'll put the new one up on the wall. But this is, you know, along with your safety talk in the morning, here are the risks that we're going to encounter today. And here's what we said we were going to do about it. And they all look at each other and be like, okay, this is, then they're all set about what they're going to do. When you think about job hazard analyses, safety talks, crane lift schedule, all of these things are tools to manage the risk of construction. You can't have anything go wrong. You don't want to have a crane fall over. You don't want to have, you want to make sure that when you put the pieces of the tunnel boring machine down the shaft for assembly, that they go down in the right order. Well, that's just planning of which ones are going in first. And that planning process is in and of itself a risk management exercise, right? The risk of we've carefully rigged this load, we take it down, and the people at the bottom are like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't I need two other pieces before I need this piece. Okay, it's got to come up again. What does it cost you? It costs you time and it costs you money. This kind of planning is really what the, the key is. And if you commit to it fully, I think you get the most out of it. It really speaks to experience. And if you don't have experience, you can have some real issues regarding safety, regarding risk management, regarding planning. So there's a lot to be said about the actual experience and putting this together. That's a very, very perceptive point because when you look at the codes of practice for risk management, it's almost like section 1.1.1 is your first line of defense against risk is experience. And that's exactly what it says. You know, if you've done it before, you're more likely to do it again. And if you do it again, you're more likely to do it better than you did it the first time. So, and particularly for owners that are the real gatekeepers of how a project is going to be run, there's a lot of responsibility on the owners to be experienced. And if they're not experienced, to go and get some experience that will really help them. That speaks to mentorship, right? Like you have to be under the tutelage of someone that has done this before and has done a good job at it. Right. Wow. So safety fits in very nicely as it relates to risk management. And you've spoken to some of these, but just want to see if there are any other benefits to managing risk properly in tunneling projects that you want to key in on. I do like the parallel with safety. Safety is a really good lesson because if you go back two or three decades to the start of my career, there people were treating safety as if it was a challenge to their manhood. And those days, thankfully, are behind us. This whole New York City where they proudly proclaimed, oh, the New York City tunnel system cost us a man a mile in fatalities. Those days are gone. I mean, tunneling is as safe, if not safer, I think, than than general construction now, as far as injury rates and, and fatality rates. It had that same kind of mindset shift with the risk management process that we're now talking they started off by being dismissive of safety. And then there was this realization that, no, actually, safety becomes beneficial. It's not something that's in the way. Oh, it's going to slow me down. It's going to cost me this. It's going to take time. It's No, safety means that you're working more efficiently, more quickly, more you save money, and everybody gets to go home at the end of the day. I mean, there are multiple benefits, that being the one that's always quoted because that's really important. What's also important to realize was there's a, the realization of, no, working safely means you're working more effectively and more cheaply with higher skilled personnel, and therefore it costs you less in time and money. So you can bid lower and win more work because you're safe. And I think that we're in that realization phase at the moment where an efficient and productive risk management process at, with safety as a subset of that, but a more holistic 
project risk management process. First, there was some dismissive, oh, no, it's going to cost us. How much is this going to cost? And then now I think the realization is, oh, hang on a minute, better planning, more planning is actually going to save us money and time. And so now we're into the realization and the implementation phase of that. So I think there are some good parallels between the change in attitude to safety and uh, and now a change in attitude to kind of the bigger picture of risk management. That's good to see where we've come. And and I'd be curious, what are your thoughts for the future of the industry? What do you think is on the horizon? What do you think we could look forward to as it relates to tunneling? The future is so bright for tunneling. I mean, you just have to look around. The surface is packed. No one's interested in the surface. If any movie director wants to give an impression of a downtrodden, run-down, awful urban environment, whether it be Gotham City or some other just horribleness, what the first thing they do, they put an elevated railway and it's noisy and dark and dark shadows and corners everywhere where people are lurking. So taking all of that infrastructure and putting it underground is almost definitely the future. As the urban areas around the world become increasingly crowded and you have to move people around, nothing does that better than transit, trains, transit, light rail, whatever it turns out to be. So transit systems are going in all over the world as within the increasing wealth and bringing lots of third world countries out of poverty. The first thing they need is reliable water supply, reliable wastewater treatment, cuts down on the disease and uh, improves the, the sanitation of these urban areas and the cities. All of that has to go underground. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of tunnel in our future. And I think that the technology is there, the willingness is there, the marketplace is there, the companies are there to do it. So I see, you know, just decades and I don't know if it goes on forever. Forever is a long time, right? But I certainly see decades of growth for the tunneling industry globally and in the US as well. So that's good. So that means there's a lot of uh, employment opportunities for those listening in, looking for somewhere to work. Absolutely. And it's personality-driven business. It's a small, tight-knit community. And I think that uh, anybody who has a, uh, a willingness to work hard and a willingness to really get a lot from a lot of enjoyment from their career would have a great time in the tunneling business. Before we take our break, what's the final piece of advice you'd like to give to those listening? There are some tunneling engineers uh, listening and watching. What's the final piece of advice you want to give them before our break? Some questions are kind of eternal. You know, I think that the most important thing in a career in general is do not ever despair because there's always a pathway for you. When I came out of college, I was uh, unemployed for about a year because it was a big recession, but I just kind of stuck to my guns about what I wanted to do and eventually got a break. I write a column for one of the trade magazines, an op-ed column. And one of the things I looked up because I was writing about young engineers and the current argument that there's dearth of young engineers and and where are the next generation of people coming from to be the leaders in our industry. And I look back at the very first RETC, which is the Rapid Excavation Tunneling Conference. It's the big national tunneling conference in the US and runs every other year. The very first one was in 1972. And they had a panel discussion about the workforce and lamenting the fact that there were no young engineers coming through. And I thought, this is exactly the same. I was two years old in 1972, and there was no young engineers then. And all the the old people that when I was in my 20s, all the old folks would have been the young engineers then were complaining about there's no young engineers. And I'm sitting there in the audience thinking, I think I'm a young engineer. What's wrong with me? 
And now here I am in my 50s and we're having the same discussions and it makes me laugh. But uh, you go to a conference that's largely populated by older people just because they want the more experienced people there for the marketing and the networking and everything else. And all the old people do is sit around lamenting that there's no young people. Well, of course, there's no young people because you're the ones that control who comes to the conference and you didn't invite any young people from your company. (laughs) Little self-fulfilling prophecy. So we're doing a lot of work with UCA trying to get more young folks there, more young engineers. We have a, a young members group that's very active and really vibrant and exciting. And I have no doubts that the, the industry's in good hands. So for any of the engineers out there, younger or older, just like I said before, don't ever despair. That's a really good note for us to pause on. Thank you for that, Bob. So we're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Bob in our Career Factor Safety End segment. Stick around. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Welcome back. It's time for our career factor safety end segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Well, today, of course, we're speaking with uh, Bob Goodfellow, PE, the president of Aldea Services Incorporated. Bob, you've already had a very successful career. Now, when you look back on your career, what's one thing that you implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? One thing that really popped up in my mind when you asked this uh, question of me was because it's so important to be connected to other people in your project team and the industry, I always had this idea of starting my own company. And one of my bosses very early in my career, he said, that's a great objective. But you should really think that you have to have something to sell. And I thought to myself, okay, and now I've been in business in my own company for 10 years and and I see the value, obviously, of what he said all those years ago. But what you have to sell during your career really changes. Looking back on the factor of safety, I think, was you know early on in your career, you're working, you're trying to learn your trade, you have technical skills that you need to gather, you have marketing, networking that you need to expand your own personal network, either through friends and colleagues or through your bosses or through your companies. And then you have your management skills that you develop at a certain point in your career. You're into the sales and marketing side where you're really genuinely selling, really, as you understand selling, you're really selling things. So you're selling your company expertise to try and win projects. Having something to sell kind of encompasses a lot of how you go about developing the necessary skills to be successful in our industry. Then ultimately, with your network that you've built up, then you're trying to find people to sell that stuff to, whether that's your current employer, a new employer a client. But uh, I think your own personal self-worth to always keep in mind that you're trying to sell something. You're selling the skills you have. You're selling your personality. You're selling you as an individual. And the great thing about tunneling is that it's a small enough business that you're not a number. 
that you're able to sell yourself as a person, which is really great. That speaks to the value that each of us has. So thank you so much for that. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing all the great insights with us. You shared a lot of great information and advice that I know is going to be helpful for our listeners. Now, where can listeners find you? Are you on social media or an email you want to share? My email is rgoodfellow at aldeaservices.com. That's A-L-D-E-A services.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, probably easier to search me up on that. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So uh, happy to answer any questions, receive any feedback. Make sure we get that in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Fantastic. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 60, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.com dot org.